This morning's passage is in, uh, comes from Revelation chapter 6. You could follow in your bulletins or you could follow in your own Bibles. We'll read the entire chapter and we will speak about this chapter this morning. If you would please stand if you're able. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the living, second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature Say, come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Would you please be seated, and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, this morning we ask, as we look together at your word, that you would be at work here among us, leading by your spirit, that your people would see what you have given them through your son, Jesus Christ, that we would glorify and honor you, that we would be sanctified in the process, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we pray, Lord God, that you would be at work here presently in this place among your people for your glory. We thank you for this, your word. Give us reverent hearts that we would know you, that we would fear you, but ultimately that we would rest in you through your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we ask all of these things. Amen. This morning I want to begin with a quote from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. If you've read it before, you realize this is a a figurative, illustrative story that explains the life of the Christian. There's a lot that we read in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress that helps us to make sense of the world that we live in and why things are the way that they are for Christians as they go through this world. Well, in that story, Christian, the main character, comes to a hill. It's really a mountain. And the hill is called 
difficulty. It's the hill of difficulty. And Christian realizes that he must go up the straight and narrow path that goes over the hill of difficulty if he's ultimately to, to end up where he's going on this journey. And so he's, he's looking and assessing, and there are other paths, but they're the paths of destruction and of danger. And he ultimately realizes that he must go over the hill of difficulty. And there Bunyan pauses for a second, and he gives this little sonnet, this little poem about the Christian life. And here's what he says. He says, this hill, though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend. For I perceive the way to life lies here. Come, pluck up, heart, that's neither faint nor fear. Better, though difficult, the right way to go, than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. You see, that's a, it's a poetic description from Bunyan of the Christian life. The straight and narrow path leading up the hill of difficulty is the explanation of the life of the Christian in this world if they're to continue their pursuit of the living God, all right? It will be a life of difficulty. And this morning, as we look at Revelation chapter 6, we see God explaining to those who receive this vision what the life of the Christian will be like from the first coming of Jesus until his second coming. It will be a life that is filled with trials and struggles and challenges of sickness, of death, of war. That's the description that God will give here in chapter 6, right? So as we look at this passage, we're reminded of the words of Christ that we don't belong in this world, that we are pilgrims here, that the, the world does not accept us because it did not accept our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if we find our lives in this world to be hard, it's because ultimately we do not belong. The message then in Revelation 6, whether it be for Christians living in 200 or 1200 or 2000 AD or until Christ returns again, is simply this message. Your lives as Christians will be challenging and hard. Ultimately, this morning, we will see this is part of God's design for the Christian. It is part of his design to sanctify us and to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me remind you where we are this morning and why we pick up in chapter 6. We began reading in chapters 4 and 5, and there we saw a vision of the throne room of God, the one who's seated on the throne, who has authority over all of creation and all of time and all of history, and everything is under his will. And if you remember, we saw in chapter 4 that, that the one who sits on the throne is holding a scroll. I want to begin by drawing that scroll, or at least what I think it would have looked like. All right, this is the scroll that I envision. That's my scroll, the scroll that I envision in Revelation chapter 4. Now, if you remember... That scroll is sealed on the edge with seven seals, okay? So these are my seven seals. There's a little bit of discussion about whether this was actually a scroll or a book. I don't think it ultimately matters. Whatever we're talking about is the document that the Father holds on the throne that contains the story for the rest of history that involves the redemption of the sons and daughters of the living God. And so there, the Father on the throne holds the scroll, sealed with seven seals. As I told you, I think they're sort of like a depiction of the wax seal that an authoritative figure would stamp his messages with that no one could access unless they were allowed to, permitted to. And so uh, there is the, seal, uh, the scroll that God holds. And in Revelation chapter 5, we see the Lion of Judah the Lamb standing as if slain, the, the second person of the Trinity, appears and he takes the scroll from God the Father. And then there's a new song in heaven, worthy is he, okay, to open the scroll, to save for God a people, to do all that God has planned, worthy is he. Revelation chapter 6 then this morning is the unfolding of the scroll, all right? And what we'll see very simply is this, that Jesus Christ breaks the seal, seal after seal after seal, and he begins to access the plan of God for the rest of history. And for each of the first four seals, as he opens these, what do we see? We see a horse. Don't laugh. This is my horse. And on the backs of the horse, uh, each horse has a rider, okay? So four seals, four horsemen, 
and for riders. And as we read, we see a white horse, a red horse, a black horse, and a pale horse. Now listen, for all the things that are debated in the book of Revelation and all the disagreements uh, that people have over what this means or what this doesn't mean, one of the things that is not really often debated is largely agreed upon is what these four horsemen represent. Okay, so the white is conquest, the red is war, the black is famine, and the pale is death, all right? Largely agreed upon. Four authoritative figures coming from the plan of God, the seals being broken by the Son of God, and what comes from it is four authoritative figures riding on horses, representing conquest, war, famine, and death. Listen, as we read this passage this morning, the overall message is very simple. God is telling his followers, from the time that Christ ascended into heaven until he returns again in judgment and to save the people of God, this will largely be your experience in this world. And it's true, right? We look at the story of history. We look at the church throughout history. We look at what all of humanity has experienced. It's largely a story of conquest, war, famine, and death. Even though we might not be experiencing that right now in the world that we live in, this is largely the story, okay? So this is what we're going to talk about this morning. Now listen, I've given you a handout in your bulletin. I think it'll be helpful. There's a few things. First of all, there's a picture on the back I'm realizing that my pictures aren't the greatest. As I look at this, it looks like a hieroglyphic from a cave, okay? It's very simplistic. There's a picture on the back. This is a wood carving from the late medieval period. I find it to be terribly helpful. I enjoy looking at vivid imagery of what was happening in the book of Revelation. So this is a wood carving from the late 1400s. It's a depiction of what's happening in Revelation chapter 6. If it's helpful for you to look at, to see, oh, what, what is John talking about and what possibly could this have looked like? There you have it. The second thing you have on that handout is a parallel Revelation chapter 6 paralleling Matthew chapter 24. Now listen, as we began weeks ago, one of the things I told you is that you have no hope of understanding Revelation if you don't look at it through the lens of the, the rest of Scripture, okay? You have to understand the revelation of Jesus Christ through the rest of the Word of God. If you remember, I told you there are roughly 450 allusions in Revelation to the rest of Scripture, especially the Old Testament Scriptures. This morning, we're going to look together at Revelation 6, and we will compare it to Matthew chapter 24. Listen, to Matthew 24, the disciples of Jesus, they say to him, Jesus, what's the last days going to be like? And when are they coming? This is one of the rare moments that Jesus will explain to them literally, not with figurative language, literally what the last days will be like. If, if we read this together with Revelation 6, you'll see these things working together to give us a beautiful picture of what it will be like in these last days, okay? If you're ever confused about Revelation, you can go back to Matthew 24 and get a lot of insight into what's happening in this book. So that's what we're looking at this morning. Let me make a few observations very simple points about Revelation chapter 6. First of all, we must acknowledge that this plan comes from the throne of God. This plan comes from the throne of God. It's very simple. Okay? And in case you, you missed it, let me just point out the obvious. What we're talking about, the unfolding of history in Revelation 6, is a plan that has been authored by the one who sits on the throne that he now holds in his hand, sealed by his stamp, accessed by the Lamb, carried out by the angels, the created angels of God. They, they do his bidding. So what we're talking about as we read about death and famine and sickness and war and conquest, we must admit that this plan has been written by the living God. It is overseen or administrated by the Son, the Lamb of God. And it is carried out or executed by the cherubim and the seraphim around the throne who are saying, come. And they call forth those who will now execute the will of God in this world. Why is that important? I think it's important because many people historically who have had a small view of God have tried to explain the things that happen in Revelation 6 and following. They've tried to explain those away because their view of God does not fit the events that unfold here. And so 
to explain this away, you have to really get creative with what's happening in Revelation 6 and following. And many people have done that. They've looked at this passage and they have said, okay, this plan, yeah, it's in the hand of, of God on the throne, but maybe it's not his plan. Maybe it's somebody else's plan. Or the angels who are saying, come, maybe they're not working for God. Maybe they're, they're working for the other guy, for Satan. Or the, the horsemen of the apocalypse who come forth right out of this plan, maybe they're not uh, doing the bidding of, of God the Father. Maybe they're doing the bidding of Satan, okay? So they have to get really creative with explaining away what's happening in these passages. But you see, the plain understanding of Revelation 6 through 16, beginning with these seals, the plain understanding is the right understanding, all right? It is the one that we look at the plan and we say, oh, some of these things are terrible. Some of these things are tough. They're hard to understand. We, we can't quite comprehend how this works out for our good and for God's glory. Though we cannot comprehend it, the book of Revelation is telling us this plan has been written, authored by the living God. It is being accessed and opened by the Lamb who is worthy. It is being executed and carried out by the four living creatures who are around the throne day and night worshiping the Lord God. They're the ones ushering forth now the four horsemen of the apocalypse, carrying out the will of God. So we, we must first acknowledge, and I won't belabor the point, we've talked about this, but we must first acknowledge that this plan comes from the throne of God. As we said from the very beginning in chapter 1, there are two purposes for God's plan in this world. What we read about in Revelation 6, two purposes. One purpose is for judgment. God is judging the world. He's judging those who are in rebellion to him. He is bringing his wrath and condemnation first in a very limited way and in the final day in judgment completely. And we'll see that at the end of this passage. But the second thing that God is doing is he's always working to sanctify his people. Remember last week, what is the goal of God in all of creation? He's making for himself a people. He desires a chorus in heaven of sons and daughters who love him, who have been saved by his power, and now who worship him day and night. And that's what he's doing. He's making for himself a people. And so therefore, the conquest, war, famine, and death that is part of God's plan for the rest of history is part of the process of making for himself a people. We're going to talk about God's judgment when we get to the trumpets and when we get to the bowls of wrath. This morning, I'd like to focus on the sanctification of the people of God. What is God working out among us and among the church, the invisible church, and, and churches throughout uh, all of history. What is God working out in this plan that he has laid out? And we see it in Revelation 6. The, the, one of the things that God is working out is that this plan is to make a perfect people. Okay? It's to make a perfect people. Now listen, uh, as I mentioned in your handout, you've got the parallel passages uh, the parallel passage from Matthew chapter 24, and if you were to go back and read Matthew 24, beginning in verse 3 through 9, you would see there that as Jesus begins answering the question to his disciples, he says, what will the, the end days be like? Well, this is what they'll be like in verse 6. You'll, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. They'll put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. That is the, the literal interpretation, the explanation of what we begin reading in Revelation chapter 6. The four horsemen of the apocalypse are a figurative picture of what Jesus just guaranteed to his followers. He said, listen, when you live in the time after I ascend, until the time that I return again, this is what it will be like. Wars, rumors of wars, conquest, famine, death, sickness, it will all be part of the equation. But what we find as we continue reading is that God has ultimately a plan to make a perfect people for himself. Look at what happens when Jesus opens the fifth seal in verse 9, okay? So four seals have been broken. Four horsemen come forth, representing conquest, war, famine, and death. Then the fifth seal, this fifth seal is broken, and we begin reading in verse 9 what happens when the fifth seal is broken. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. 
they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? See what's happening in the fifth seal. Not at this moment is God telling his people necessarily what will come forth in the course of history. As the fifth seal is broken, he's giving us insight into what it will look like then for the saints, and especially for those who are martyred for their faith or persecuted on account of the gospel, what it will look like for them as they live in the midst of those last days. They will cry forth, how long, O Lord? You can likely echo their sentiment, can't you? As we wait on the return of the Lord and we, we view the suffering or we experience the suffering of this world, and we say, how long, O Lord? How long will you wait until you return? How long until you usher in your kingdom? How long until a new heaven and new earth? How long until there's no longer any suffering or tears or sickness or sin? How long, O Lord? In Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ gives insight into what it will be like now living in this time, waiting on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as the saints cry out, how long, O Lord, look at how that question is answered. In verse 11, they were given a white robe and they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were killed or to be killed as they themselves had been. Listen to how Jesus explains it in his own words in Matthew 24. In verse 9, you see the parallel passage. He says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation, and they will put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then in verse 13, he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. See, the picture that Jesus is giving in Matthew and in Revelation is simply this. If you were to ask him the question, okay, when, Lord Jesus, how long? When will be the end? When will you return in judgment? When will you ultimately save your people? When will you vindicate us? Jesus doesn't give an answer of time frame. Like, hey, 13 years from now. Or it will be two millennia. Never the answer that Jesus gives. What does he say? He always gives an answer in relationship to the people. People of God. Revelation 6, it says, until the number of your brothers who are to be killed for the gospel, the sake of the gospel, are brought in, until that number is made perfect and complete, then the end will come, but not until that point. In Matthew 24, he says, when, when? When the word of the good news, the proclamation of the kingdom, has gone forth into all the earth, right? Until all have heard and all who are appointed to believe have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, all whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life, until that very moment when the last one has been brought in, not until then will the end come. That's how Jesus answers the question of when. You you see, we're beginning to see that God has ordained the beginning from the end. That he, from before the foundation of the earth, has appointed a people for himself. And in the course of history, he's working out their redemption and their saving and their conformity unto the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And he's working this out to make for himself this perfect people. But until the day when the very last one is brought in, we will still be living in these last days. There's a beautiful image from the Old Testament, as we often see. The beautiful image is the image of the ark. Okay, because what happens when, when God is saving not only a people for himself, but he's preserving his creation and the animals, there's a question that Noah could have asked. I don't think it's recorded that he asked this, but I believe he could have asked God, when? When are you going to shut up the door and bring the rains? All right? But as Noah labored, the answer was simply this, not until every last one who should be in the ark is brought in until every last animal, until every last member of Noah's family. And when they are all brought into the ark, and that is full, it's complete, it is made perfect, then God shut the door on the ark and he saved them. And he brought judgment on the rest of the earth. This is the picture that we get as the fifth seal is broken. 
okay? So there's a plan here to make a perfect people of his own possession. And not until that moment does the end come. You see, part of the conquest and the war and the famine and death in these last days is to make us yearn for that moment, right? It's so that the people of God aren't like, hey, we don't care about what God's doing in the rest of history. We're kind of content where we are. No, there's a discontent that is sown into the fabric of the broken creation so that the people of God might eagerly wait for the revealing of the sons and daughters, as it says elsewhere in Scripture. And so we see this plan of the perfect people of God being brought in. The third thing I think this passage brings out is that this plan, well, this marker is terrible. Two weeks in a row, someone stole my marker. So here we go. We'll make it green. This plan should move us to prayer. Okay, it should move us to prayer. Listen, there are so many ways I think this plan that is being unfolded in Revelation 6 should move the people to prayer, the people of God to prayer. We can echo with the saints who are under the altar, how long, O Lord, that's a way we ought to be praying as we wait on the return of Christ. We can read the magnificence of the living God and we can be moved to prayer in jubilance and worship and praise because we see how great is our God. That's a good way to pray, but let me give you another way I think it's important, and this passage certainly moves us in this type of prayer. Many modern American Christians will read this passage and they will say, okay, but how does this relate to me? I'm, I, I can't identify with conquest, war, famine, and death. And it reminds me, there was a time a few years ago, my family was reading through the Psalms, and we got about 20 or 30 Psalms in. And my wife said, I'm really frustrated with reading the Psalms. And I said, why are you frustrated? These are beautiful. And she said, well, I, I can't resonate. I don't feel like I've ever been uh, uh, chased by a group of people trying to take away my life or betrayed by my children or having to prepare for battle. These aren't things that I go through on my in my daily life. And I said, that's a really good point. So the question remains then, how do we relate? I think if I was to ask for a show of hands, I don't think there's anybody in here who's lived through a famine. Maybe you have. I don't know you well then. Uh, I don't know if anyone here has lived through conquest and wars. None of us have experienced war in our home. There's not been a, home, a war here for 150 years. So what do we do with this? I think many Christians wrongly take this and they say, okay, if this is to be my experience in this world, then what do I have to do? I have to, I have to create this. I have to create conflict in my world. I have to be despised by people. I have to reject the pleasures of this world. Life has to be a dirge. I have to hate it living here if I'm to experience what God has promised me. That's not the answer. I know that idea is in vogue, but that's not the answer, okay? I think one of the things it reminds us is that God is telling us what will be the experience of the church in this world, and we must remember that the promises of God's word are not for particular people people, but they're for a whole group of people, the church, okay? Broadly speaking, the church throughout all of history. God is not making a person. He's making a people. He has not promised to sanctify a person. He's promised to sanctify a people. These are things that God is working out in the whole church throughout all of history. What it reminds us is that the church has largely suffered these things throughout history and that Christians today continue to suffer these things. We're reminded that the world is much bigger than us and that there are Christians all around the world who are suffering conquest, war, famine, and death, and it calls us then to pray for them even as we don't live through these things in our world, to intervene on their behalf. What does the Apostle Paul say in 1 Corinthians 12? He says, if one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. And, and that's a sentiment that the Christian church needs to relate with to be moved to prayer for. Think about these numbers, okay? Gordon Conwell, about three years ago, did a study on uh, Christian martyrs throughout history. They said roughly 70 million Christians throughout the course of history have been killed for their faith. More than half of them happened in the 20th century, okay, in the 1900s. They also said in the 21st century, the last 23 years, approximately 100,000 Christians every year have been killed for their faith throughout the, the earth, right? So we're not experiencing it, but the church is experiencing it. 212, 212 
churches a month around the world, their properties are destroyed, attacked, or persecuted in some way, okay? 212 every month around the world. Church buildings and properties, the, the physical, tangible goods that they have are attacked. The reality is that this is the experience of the church around the world throughout all of history. It ought to move us to pray for them. It it ought to move us. We ought to be compelled to be lifting up Christians around the world who are largely suffering these things even at this moment. Could you imagine for a second if the church in Thyatira said, you know what, thanks for the letter and the vision, but we're not suffering. Ephesus might be suffering. Laodicea is not suffering, but we've got a good here. These things don't apply to us. They have nothing to do with us. Or if the church in Thyatira simply removed themselves because they thought that these things were not part of their everyday living, but, but know that the call of this letter and of the Word of God is that the people of God together lift one another up, that when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. That's the reality that we're called to. And so we're called to pray for the church at large that largely is suffering these things on a daily basis. I think this passage certainly moves us in prayer concerning those things and more. So that would be the third point. The fourth point is very simply this, okay? This plan calls us to vigilance, okay? To vigilance. The word vigilant means to be wide-eyed, to be clear, to be... uh, to, to see what is happening and, and not to be fooled or to be duped or to have something concealed, but for it all to be in the open and to really see it, okay? This passage calls us to vigilance. Look at how the passage ends. Beginning in verse 12, the sixth seal is broken. And you might be wondering, where's the seventh seal? It won't be broken for another two chapters. So stay tuned for the seventh seal. But the sixth seal is broken, and look what it says. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Listen, when the sixth seal is broken, okay, this is a depiction again of the second coming in judgment of Jesus Christ, okay? This is when he returns to judge the world, and I'm going to prove that to you. I want to show you a few different things. First of all, again, to your parallel passages, if you look in Matthew, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 29. So as he's explaining to his disciples what will the end days be like, he's just explained the, the period of tribulation. There'll be trials and you'll be persecuted. You'll experience death and, and all these trials. And then this is what he says in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, that is after these last days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other You see, if you take this language from Revelation 6 and from Matthew 24 and you trace it through the rest of this book, these phrases will appear a few more times in Revelation, okay? The great earthquake, the sun being blackened, the moon turning red, the stars falling from the heavens, the mountains and the islands being moved from their place, okay? This language will appear again and again, but it's always in reference to the coming of Christ in judgment. You don't believe me? Look at Revelation 16, In chapter 16, after the bowls of wrath are poured out, 
We see there toward the end of the bowls the judgment of Jesus Christ on all of creation. The reality that's revealed in Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 and Revelation 16 and later in chapter 13, the reality that is revealed is that there's a promise that Christ has come that an era of tribulation will now befall both the creation and the church. Together they will go through this, two different purposes, and that will ultimately be ended when Jesus Christ returns in judgment and he will bring judgment, not only on the people who have rebelled against him, but on all of creation. And the picture that's depicted in Revelation 6, beginning in verse 12, is a complete and comprehensive picture. Look at, for instance, the groups of people who here are described as the ones who will cry out, let the mountains fall on us. Look at them. They begin in verse 16. And you think about this. You might be wondering, why are all these groups of people mentioned? Just think about this as I read it again. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, okay? I don't know if you noticed it, but there are seven categories of people mentioned in verse 16. Verse 15. Seven categories of people mentioned in verse 15. And a lot of these are almost redundant. Like, how do you distinguish, for instance, the kings from the powerful ones, okay? Or from the free and the rich, okay? Uh, They're all mentioned in this list. So, what are, what are we doing? Again, we're in a figurative book that is using figurative pictures to communicate a message. What's the message? Well, seven has been all over the book of Revelation, hasn't it? And every time we've talked about it, we said, well, this is the picture of completeness. It is thorough. It is perfect. It is comprehensive. It leaves nothing out. That's what's happening in the book of Revelation. So we see then at the return of Christ a perfect, thorough, complete, lacking nothing, no one spared judgment on all of creation. That then there is only three categories. There are those who will be redeemed by the, by the blood of the Lamb, and they will be saved. There are those who are not, and they will be judged, and there's the rest of creation. And those who are judged and the rest of creation will be folded up like a scroll, and all will fall under the wrath of Him who sits on the throne, and, maybe surprisingly, the Lamb. Yeah, you saw that in verse 17, right? Hide us from the one who's, seat, who's seated on the throne, and the wrath of the Lamb. It will be perfect in the day of judgment. And the answers of the saints who are crying out, how long, O Lord, they will ultimately be answered in the judgment of the Son of God who comes with judgment. There's another thing. You you might not have noticed this. This is, you could call it the reverse order of creation, right? So God creates, and He creates the earth, and He creates the sun and the moon, and then He creates the living beings, the firmament and the living beings, and then He creates man. If you see what's happening here, we, we begin with the earth, and then we go all the way through, and God decreates it. He destroys it, okay? Beginning with the earth, and then the sun, and then the moon, and then the firmament, and then the rest of creation, and then ultimately man. He, he decreates. He, he brings the judgment as the kind of reverse of the creation. And, and then this is ultimately the event that precedes the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth. And it's beautiful and scary and terrifying and terrible, all depending on who you are, right? The, the call then at the end of, of this, this sixth seal, at the end of this chapter, the call then is for the people of God to remain vigilant. I think Jesus Christ reveals this to his churches because his desire is not that they would know the day or the time, but rather that they would pay attention to the things that are happening in this period of history and that they would eagerly and attentively await the return of Christ. Look at how Jesus describes that at the end of that Matthew 24 passage. Listen, this is, this is where the idea of a rapture comes from, and I, I don't believe uh, that a rapture is ultimately biblical, uh, and if, if you're confused about that, you know, please grab me after. We'll see that being fleshed out as we go through the book of Revelation, but this is ultimately where that idea comes from, these three verses here, and what I think Jesus is saying is not that this is a technical relating of exactly what will happen, but rather he's calling his followers to remain ever vigilant. Look at what he says in verse 41. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, 
For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Listen, it's very simple. I believe that Jesus Christ ends his exhortation in Matthew 24 or concludes here with the sixth seal as a reminder to his followers that one day he will return again. And you may be sitting here thinking, I I think the return of Christ is near. I I don't know if it's near. I, I don't know when Christ is returning. Ultimately, that doesn't matter, right? Because he has told us what the time period that we live in will now be like. And he has told us, when is he returning? Not a day, not an hour, not a year. Not even a time frame, but rather he has told us that when the number of our brothers is complete, when the word of God has gone perfectly out to all the nations and all who were planned ahead of time to be saved have heard and have believed in faith, then the end will come. And so the reminder is for the followers of Christ to remain ever vigilant, to live before the throne of God knowing that there's a God who has authored this plan, who has a son, who has come to redeem us, who has given us his life that if we believe by faith, we will be saved and redeemed, and we are now being sanctified, and we're to live with an eye on that day. When Christ returns, not ultimately to bring judgment for us, but to bring eternal hope, right? The new heaven and the new earth. Everything that we have waited on, everything that we yearn for in our heart of hearts. As the encouragement for the Christian is very simple. Remain vigilant. Look to the day of the return of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have loved us so much that you saw fit before the foundation of the earth to design a plan, to seal the plan, to ultimately Call your son and him to follow in faithful obedience the plan of redemption. That he alone is worthy, not only to open that plan, but worthy to redeem a people for you, our God and our Father. He has accomplished this through his blood and through his body and through his death and through his resurrection and through his ascension that he is now the king who has overcome. And so, Lord God, we ask simply this, that you would make us, your people, willing and able to worship our King, our Redeemer, our Savior, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb who was slain. Would you make us, your people, with one voice, our hearts rise together, to worship you, our Lord and our God. We thank you and we praise you this morning. In your name we ask all of this. Amen. Let me ask you to remain seated as we continue our worship through the collections of tithes and offerings and as we sing together. Out of my bondage, sorrow, and night, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come, into thy freedom, gladness, and light, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of my sickness, into thy health, out of my wanting and into thy wealth out of my sin and into thyself jesus i come to thee out of my shameful failure and loss Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come, 
into the glorious gate of thy cross jesus i come to thee out of the sorrows into thy balm out of life's storms and into thy calm out of distress into jubilant song Jesus, I come to Thee. Out of unrest and arrogant pride, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come. Into Thy blessed will to abide, Jesus, I come to Thee. Out of myself to dwell in Thy love, out of despair into raptures above, upward forever on wings like a dove. Jesus, I come to Thee. Out of the fear and dread of the tomb, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come. Into the joy and light of thy home, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of the depths of ruin untold, into the peace of thy sheltering fold, ever thy glorious face to behold. Jesus, I come to thee. Jesus, I come to thee. Well, in just a second, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, and before we do, let me just give a few words of instruction and connection to the, uh, the preaching of God's Word this morning. The last point that I mentioned to you was that we, uh, this plan calls us to vigilance, and you might be wondering, well, what type of vigilance are we to have? What does it look like for us to prepare for the Lord's return? And sort of in a counterintuitive way, it is not uh, primarily about a work that we must do, okay? This is not a works-based good news. It is not calling you to do something to save yourself. Rather, the call of the Lord Jesus Christ is to believe something, to depend upon something, and that is very different. This table is a picture for the people of God. Just like Revelation is an illustrative picture for the eyes and for the ears, the Lord's Supper is a picture in that it is a sacrament. It is a picture of things that are invisible that the people of God are to feel and to taste and to see, that we might know an invisible truth to be realized and experienced and understood in our hearts, okay? The invisible truth is this, that Jesus Christ has come to the earth, that he has given himself body and blood, that he was actually crucified, and the blood of Christ Jesus now is the thing that covers over the sins of those who believe him by faith. It's the thing that makes us right before God. It's the thing that makes us vigilant. It's the thing that makes us prepare for his return, okay? So the message to you this morning is very simple. As Christ said to his followers, who will be saved? It is he who eats of my body and drinks of my blood. And the people around him are like, what are you talking about? It is a spiritual eating and drinking that we must undertake. And that is, we come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. We take of him. We are joined together with him by faith. And then we trust that the body and the blood of Christ is all that is necessary to cover over our sin that we might be seen as blameless and righteous before the throne of God. How then 
do we remain vigilant for his return? We look to him. We remind one another of him. We trust in him. We pray to him. We sing of him. We speak of him in our homes. We rest on him. We rely on him. We find our hope in him. This is what the table's all, all about. This is why we take the Lord's Supper together, the beginning of every month, that we might be reminded this is all we need. This is enough. This is sufficient. So this is what we're doing together this morning as the body of Christ. Now listen, a few instructions for you, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. First of all, the Bible says that this table is for those who have had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have had your own faith in Christ, if you've believed him by faith, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. If that's not you, if you haven't trusted the Lord by faith, if you're a child of a believer and you're here and like, what's going on? Don't take this supper. You can come forward. You could stand with your parents, but don't take the bread and the wine. It's, it's not for you. There's a warning in Scripture, but rather sit and rest and meditate and contemplate the preaching of the Word of God and, and what's depicted in this table. For all those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we encourage you to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. We're going to dismiss you from the back uh, moving forward. So the, the last row will be dismissed and so on and so forth. You'll come forward. You'll fan out to the edges. The elders will serve you uh, the wafer. If you need gluten-free bread, just ask them and they'll give it to you. They'll serve you wine on the tray. And if you desire to have juice instead of wine, that's on the outer ring of the tray. Okay? So the juice is on the outer ring. If you need it, take it. Once you've eaten the bread and taken the wine, you can then go back at the outer aisles to your seats. Uh, sorry, I got that wrong, didn't I? You're coming down this aisle. You're going back the inner aisle because that's where the baskets are. So you put your cups in the basket as you go back to your seat. You'll see it's fairly straightforward. That's how we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. While you're seated, sing together, reflect on the word, use the time for prayer and preparation, and then we'll end this time by singing together the doxology. Let me offer a word of prayer would you join me in praying? Father in heaven, we thank you that you have sent your son. We thank you that your plan has been since before the foundation of the earth that a perfect death would satisfy the law's demands. And that the fall which happened in Genesis 3, by which sin was ushered into this world, would be answered loudly and boldly and confidently and completely with the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior. And so we ask by your Spirit, would you take ordinary bread and ordinary wine, and would you, by your Spirit, work in an extraordinary way in our hearts that we would have confidence and assurance and hope and see our Lord and Savior and rest upon him alone. We thank you and we praise you this morning. In Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we ask all of this. Amen.